digitization is something that we did in the past because as we look forward and we look at things differently, what we did is we were trying to build digital relationships using technology. And I think what we have to morph to is using digital to build relationships. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, listeners. This is David Wright, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today I am lucky enough to be joined by Nimesh Mehta. Nimesh, how are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure. Could you take a minute to tell our listeners a little bit about your current role? Absolutely. I am... uh... Nimesh, I'm the CIO at National Life Group. National Life is one of the fastest growing insurance companies in the U.S. and it's one of the top 10 life insurers here. Of course, yeah, my household name, of course. So I'll look forward to learning more about that. But to start, we like to ask, what's one piece of actionable advice you will look to give our listeners today? It's interesting on the things that you learn through the course of your life. And I think the one piece of advice I'd give to your listeners is stop being comfortable. Learn to lean into your discomfort because that's the way to grow and learn and to get to where you want to go. I think once you start being comfortable, we get too complacent, I would say. So one piece of advice, don't be comfortable. And if your dreams are big enough, they should scare you. I hear that as an entrepreneur. And that's great advice. I've learned and grown the most in my life leading out of uncomfortable events. And so great takeaway. So Namesh, let's learn a little bit more about you. Where did you start out and how did you get to be the CIO of this national brand? You know, life takes you down journeys and curves of all kinds of places. And if I go back in my career, I never thought I would be in the financial services industry. I'm a computer engineer and a robotics person by trade, by design, by education. And I thought my life would be hardware engineering. And I've done that for a while. And I moved into the financial services industry and I worked for Lincoln Financial for about 14 years. 
And then I came to National Life because I really wanted to see the impact and see something grow and be a part of that growth. So I joined this smaller life insurance company called National Life. And I joke around with my boss and I told the board the other day, I said, I'm not sure I was made an offer I couldn't refuse or one I couldn't understand, but I'm still here. So I started down my company. I, I started in technology as the chief technology officer. A few months later, my boss came to me and said, hey, by the way, how would you like to run this mail print department and transform it? I didn't know anything, never seen a print machine in my life. And I learned a lot about the mailrooms. I went from technology to learning the mailroom. And then I came back and I said, hey, what's next? And he says, you know, we need to think about Vision 2020. So I became the chief strategy officer and worked on our Vision 2020. And then I happened to actually say, it's time for me to really round out my skills. And I left the company for a few months. And I was called back by the CEO and he said, you know, this thing you wanted to do, would you come back to National Life and do it? I said, you know, doing what? He said, how would you like to come and run all of life and annuity operations? I've never run operations before. Great piece. I jumped in, didn't know what I was doing. Great advice and took my own advice and did it. And then after that, he said, well, I think we need to really become a technology digitally enabled company. So I'd like you to take on the CIO role. So here you go, full circle. It's been a real privilege to have learned so many things across so many different parts of the company. And it gives me a different perspective in technology today. Yeah, very cool. That uh, I identify with kind of flying over my skis a little bit while not over-promising and under-delivering. It's an interesting place to be. You know, it's kind of leaning into that discomfort really, but as an organization, that's largely how we grew because we were building consulting modules as we were running them in a, in a number of different instances. But that problem solving and that desire to continue learning is really cool. It is pretty amazing. And I'll, I remember doing an interview very much out of college for a big consulting company. I remember the lady asking me, what did you learn in college? And I looked at her and I said, nothing. And she thought I had horns in my head and I wasn't trying to be cocky. And I said, do you know what I really learned? Because I would fail every thermodynamics or calculus test if you gave it to me today. But what right. I really learned is how to learn. And I learned how to problem solve. I could take something, break it down into manageable pieces and figure out what to do with it. Yeah, totally. Well, that's a great transition into my next question, Namesh. What's one of the most important things that you've learned over the course of your life, really? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? Yeah, you know, one of the things as I think through it going way back in time is for me, it was really accepting who I was and accepting me being an introvert. And I used to always believe that the world was designed to be successful around extroverts. And I needed to become one and I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And that was a learning for me to say, how is that gonna happen? In fact, a couple of years ago, my high school's uh, going son decided to do a EEG experiment where he puts these things on people's heads and he measured brainwave activities during an interview process. And our world is designed and introverts, when they're interviewing extroverts, appreciate extroverts and extroverts appreciate extroverts. So you end up being in a situation where how are you going to win? And I think mm -hmm. what I learned over time is I need to accept that as a, it is a superpower and not a kryptonite. And when I looked in and looked at so many different leaders, you know, 
Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Abraham Lincoln, Einstein. They were all introverts and they were very successful in what they did. And after I could you know, figure that out and I became more self-aware, I think the learning journey and what it gave me in life was empathy, is really meeting people where they are versus expecting them to come to you. And I think that is something that comes with this personality type. The other thing that it really, really taught me, and I put it to good use, is diversity of thought, is different personality types bring different diversity of thought. And diversity of thought allows you to make better business decisions. And if everybody thinks alike, you've got an echo chamber. And I think that's what I learned in my life is accept that and figure out what you're going to do with it. And it is a superpower and not your kryptonite. Hugely insightful. It resonates with me because I struggled with imposter syndrome and you know, I wouldn't necessarily classify myself as an introvert, but I, for a long time, would certainly seek validation to a, I don't want to say unhealthy degree, but really almost determine my worth by what people thought of me or what, you know, if something went well, then I was good. And if something went poorly, then I was bad. Right. And it's just, I had to realize that I'm enough. I have valuable insights to offer. I'm a father. I have a beautiful life and I'm a thought leader. And if that resonates with someone, great. And if not, that's okay too. And I also love what you said about the different members of the team. I had a conversation the other day about how, you know, you have to lead those people differently as well. So the diversity of thought, I think welcoming that is huge. And as a leader, all these people have different personality types. How am I building that human connection with them and encouraging them, meeting them where they're at, the way they need to be led, I think is also kind of interesting. Absolutely. Because every person is different and every person requires a different level of coaching. You don't coach every athlete the same way. Exactly. How about one of, obviously we've all had you know failures over the course of our career. What's something that stands out in your mind as maybe a project that didn't go well or personally, professionally, or otherwise something that you failed at that you learned a lot from? You know, failure is something that's sort of become a buzzword in a way, and everybody's talking about it. And I think my biggest failure was hating failure. I hated to fail. I would do anything not to fail. And sometimes learning when to fail, how to fail is more important than failing and learning from that failure and then applying it and turning it into performance. So how do you take something that you failed at, learn from it, apply it, and turn it into performance? So I think for me, it was really first accepting the fact that failing is okay. That was my biggest failure because I would not fail and I don't know how much damage I probably caused around me because I probably left dead bodies in my path as I plowed through not wanting to fail. Mm. I think that was my biggest learning lesson out of it is just accept failure. It's okay. Celebrate failure. Yeah. It's a huge part now too of, of even of innovation. I talk about this with clients all the time, how in order to innovate, we are going to need to fail at certain junctures during the course of this journey quickly and welcome that, integrate that feedback into what we're doing and keep moving and not 
make anyone wrong. Not It doesn't need to be a whole thing. So I love that. That's great advice. It's not if, it's when you fail and what are you going to do with it? And with entrepreneurs, executives, leaders, anybody and whatever you're working on, it's figuring out what you're going to do with it. That's the most important part of it. 100%. So, Mesh, let's talk a little bit more about your current role. So you're the CIO of National Life. What is your vision for the organization and how does that translate into your world in IT and digital? Absolutely. Let's start with the organization itself. You know, for people that don't know National Life is being a life insurance company, you know, one of the biggest things that we are a very purpose and mission driven organization. You know, people talk about that and our mission is really to serve middle America. It is the most underserved part of our nation and community. We look at it and we say, there's more than a, out of the 300 million population, there's more than a hundred million middle Americans that are either underinsured or just not insured. We've seen so many bad things happen when people haven't thought through their future. And sometimes they either live too long, you die too young, or you get ill. One of those three things is going to happen to you and you got to figure out what you're going to do with it. So our company's mission is to keep those promises and to make sure that we're doing good in the process. And we say when doing good is let's do the right thing first and then other things will follow. You know, that's the values and the mission of the organization. And as we think through that, you know, you kind of contemplate and say, what does this have to do with technology, right? Okay. But I think when you think about technology, technology is also all about helping the company keep those promises. And if you go to the old adage that people have said, if Ford asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. But with technologists, and we have to understand and learn the business to be able to read between the lines and understand faster horses actually means speed and transport. And how are you going to deliver that? So our strategy within IT has been pretty unchanged for many years since I've taken on the role. We do different things, but strategically, you know, to become a technology-enabled company, we believe in three pillars. And it's as techies, we believe in tech, T-E-C. It's a pretty simple acronym, right? And T stands for talent. What are we going to do to get the right talent? Because without people, and people are a secret sauce. If we don't have the right people, nothing's going to happen. So let's get that talent piece done. What are we doing towards that? E, the second piece, which is execution. We are in the pursuit of flawless execution. And that's the nirvana state, but it is all about learning. And every step we take, we take a step forward. As we fail, we learn and we go through that. But again, that's the execution. And the C is customer understanding. And that's, you know, goes back into what I was telling you earlier, which is how do we understand what our customers are looking for, not what they're asking for. And to put that together and develop something that is the art of the possible to be able to deliver that competitive advantage for the organization. So that's kind of what, how we think about technology here at National Life. It's not just an enabler. A lot of people talk about enabling technologies. I think right. technology is part and parcel of business. It drives the business forward. It's not the second class citizen or the second fiddle or second, it's a part of the table, you know? People tell me, do you have a seat at the table? I always hear that question from a lot of people. 
I said, it's not about having the seat at the table. My problem is what am I going to do with my seat at the table? Yeah, hundred percent. It sounds like you guys are structured really well as an organization. It's great to see that. What are some of the key initiatives you guys are focused on? And we're doing so many things. And some of these things, as you said, in an insurance company, we're like an aircraft carrier, right? If you turn it three degrees off course, you'll end up five miles away from your destination. So it's really about trying to manipulate all the different ecosystems. And some of the systems we have are older than me. So you've got to be able to live and coexist in the world of innovation, transformation, legacy modernization, and just some old stuff that's never going to go away. So that's our world. So let me talk about some of the things we're doing innovatively. When you think about the values in serving middle America, middle America are working people. When you used to buy life insurance in the past, well, somebody came to your house or you went somewhere and you had to give blood, the all had to get tested, so on and so forth. And then you waited for a billion days and it went into a black box and somehow magically a policy showed up at your doorstep. And that was right. the life insurance experience. And you don't, didn't know or you changed your mind in, the, you know, in those 60 days and said, yeah, I don't need it anymore. And you moved on. Maybe you really needed it. So what we're trying to do is to really simplify the whole experience of life insurance and to make it faster. And we just implemented this, just went live about, I think, a couple of months ago, where now we've developed this platform that allows a person to apply for a life insurance policy through an agent, go through that whole process electronically. The whole thing gets underwritten electronically. It gets issued electronically, delivered electronically, all instantly with no human touch. Wow. That gives you scale. Yeah. How do they manage medical underwriting? Data. It's the magic. There's data out there. And when you look around, there's medical information, financial information, all kinds of other things that we can put together in our own secret algorithm and figure out what risk, you know, the, the customer has and therefore what premium they should be paying for that particular policy. So you don't need the information that you needed once upon a time because, you know, there's this whole thing, everybody talks about it and in God I trust and everything else, there's data. Yeah, that is innovative and that's really impressive. I, mean, I have to check out your platform now. I have some life insurance, by the way, everyone, but I could always use a little more probably, especially yeah. with another baby on the way, right? Yeah, since you have um, another baby on the way, you know, I'll be calling you if you don't have any. <laughs> <laughs> there you, you go. <laughs> the other thing about life insurance is it's a very complicated product. And I think we have to figure out ways to simplify the purchase of such a product. And let me give you an example. I mean, I'm not sure if you are or not, but I'm an iPhone user. And when I bought this thing, the only thing in the box was the phone. Guess what was missing? the manual, right? There is no manual to use it. However, that device, the iPhone, has more computing power than mission control that sent man to the moon. So they haven't simplified the product, they simplified the use of the product. I think the same analogy stands for insurance is we're not looking to decomplexify a very complicated financial product, but I think what we have to do is to make it simple to buy, and to use when you need it. And we have this saying at our, at our organization is simple is hard. And we have the way to figure out how we can do that through technology, digital, and other means. Very cool. Yeah, I love that mandate. 
That's really uh, great to hear. On that trajectory, what are some of the biggest challenges you guys are facing now as an organization? I think our challenges are pretty much the same as everybody's. We're in a war for talent. Yep. I was telling my leadership team the other day, we were talking about it, I said, the war for talent is over. Talent won. <laughs> now we got to figure out what we're going to do with it. So I think finding the right people at the right time at the right price is a big challenge. And we fundamentally have to change our headsets. And remember, we, I was talking about empathy. And I think this is another form of empathy. We have to meet this challenge where it is versus expecting it to come to us and be solved. And when mm -hmm. I say that, I look at it as I'll give you know the listeners a couple of things that we're doing that are probably would have never done if we weren't in this environment. And that one of the things is you got to know who you want. We have this human element in us that puts three people in front of us and we pick one. We want comparative choices. In today's market, you need to know who you want and you've got one shot at getting it. You can't be in this wishy-washy situation and say, well, I just need to compare it with one more person. Well, too late. You got to ready, aim, and fire. You can't do ready, aim, 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 aim. Target's gone. Right. So that's the difference in the market and the challenge today. The other one is in today's talent market, it's a little bit like a dating and marriage, right? Dating happens, marriage happens, and then divorce becomes expensive for both parties. So you got to make sure that dating cycle is for both parties to be a part of that. It's not a one-way street. You have to sell yourself, your culture, your company just as much as the candidate is trying to sell you their skills and their competencies and find that right alignment between the two. So you really have to meet them where they are to be able to understand that. And the third thing I would say is learn how to interview different personality types. People dismiss candidates for all the wrong reasons in the world. Learn how to accept them, see through that, and understand the value that they're bringing to the table or see through the value that they're not bringing to the table. Learn to accept that because if you dismiss, this is not a market in which you can dismiss candidates for the wrong reason. Yeah. So I think great. that's the challenge in the market, talent market today. Great points. And I think relevant to a lot of our listeners, for sure. How about some of the best practices you and your team follow? I imagine you might have some good insights there. Yeah. When you bring people of different thought processes together, you need to learn to appreciate those thought processes because just bringing them together doesn't get you the right decision. And one of the best practices we follow with my team is a concept that we call intellectual wrestling. And what I mean by that is we leave our stripes at the door when we come in and we're willing to put our point of view forward and everybody gets heard so that we can make the best decision for the company. And sometimes it's a knockout, drag down, debate, argument about something, and then we can go out and have a, a drink together. And that's totally fine because it was, had nothing to do with work. We're still friends. But to have the availability and the safe space to be able to do that is critical. It sounds really simple. If you try to implement it, it will take years to implement. It took me about three to four years just to get people comfortable because you always have that one person that doesn't want to say anything. And as a leader, I would say, go last. Once you put your opinion forward, 
they're going to follow. Right. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, I think it speaks to the culture that you clearly created because just the fact that you said safe space, I mean, is just a testament to that. I mean, I think more leaders need to be really focused on that right now. A, to create that environment for sharing of ideas, and B, because when you talk about the war for talent, one of the biggest enemies too is attrition, right? Because you know, with attrition, not only are you going to lose that employee and lose the productivity there, but then you're going to need to invest in hiring and training someone new. I mean, it's like a sixty to hundred thousand dollar proposition, depending on the employee type. So spending the time to create a culture like that, I mean, I think it is important. So that's definitely a great best practice. And you bring up a really important point, attrition. You know, I strongly believe that people leave people and they leave their managers and they leave the culture. And you really have to look at that rather than anything else. They're not leaving for money. Yeah, sure, compensation is an important part, but people always run to compensation. I look at our team and I look around us and I say, what have we done so that the person left? Because they're leaving us. So we as leaders have failed. Right. They should want to stay with us. And we talk about this is, I want to make it really hard for you to join us. And I want to make it really hard for you to leave us. That's the culture that we want to imbibe in us. This is a family. And you don't leave family. Right. You know, we touched on a number of the the innovative projects you guys have going on, but any other innovative technologies that you're excited about in the the near or long-term that you think will serve to support the business vision of National Life? I think there's a couple of interesting things going on. I think, you know, in the world of security, I think biometrics are going to play a big role. Mm -hmm. I think if you look five to 10 years down, I think quantum computing is going to have a role because encryption is no longer going to be valid if things break down. So I think there's a lot of things that we're looking at that are sort of out there. But when you think about disruption, I think about disruption as not trying to create the next technology that creates the, the disruption, but it's really about how can we be innovative to stitch things together that already exist in disruptive ways. So how can I take a biometrics and something else and something else and create this unique platform or something that we can do so much better than anybody else. Yeah, and that makes total sense. I saw a company out of the, another company, a car dealership out of the Midwest, kind of doing something similar with an online auto sale platform with open APIs and with all the open source kind of new cloud-based platforms, it's becoming easier and easier to do that. Granted, when some of your platforms are out of date, you know, that can pose some issues and that's not dissimilar to, you know, most or many, I should say, financial institutions that we talk to, but I think that's a great strategy. So Namesh, where do you see the financial services industry going in the future? And what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes? You know, David, I'm going to say something that's probably going to be controversial to your listeners, so I'm going to put it out there. I think digital was yesterday. Everybody's mm -hmm. chasing digital, and I think digital is yesterday. I think what we have to be looking for, and whoever cracks this nut is going to be the genius, is humanization. And when I say that, 
digitization is something that we did in the past because as we look forward and we look at things differently, what we did is we were trying to build digital relationships using technology. And I think what we have to morph to is using digital to build relationships. Just that slight twist brings the human aspect of what we need to do in computing, especially after COVID. People are craving for human interaction. They don't want to be talking to a machine or another Zoom call. And the best 100%. example I can give you of that is a GPS, right? A couple of years ago, the GPS lady always said, in the next 100 meters, make a right turn. Well, I don't have a measuring tape and I don't know where 100 meters is. <laughs> but now if you hear it, it'll go, at the next light, make a right turn. Well, that's how a human gives directions. And that's a perfect example of humanization. And I think digital was probably yesterday, but if we can crack the nut on humanization, I think that'll be the next phase of the future. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for sharing that insight, Namesh. So, Namesh, we're coming up on time here, but we like to end the podcast with a question. If you could go back in five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Now, as I look back a few years, I have to tell myself that your legacy is your team. You've got to figure out what's the best way to bring out the best potential as a coach in your athletic team to be able to get them to become the best performers they can be. It's not about you. It's not about you moving forward. It's about you really thinking about leaving that legacy of your team when you look behind. I would say that's the best piece of advice I could have given myself. Had I truly believed in that, I probably would have done what I do today 10 years earlier. That's great advice. But we still see leaders that are, you know, towards the tail end of their career and, and are still holding on to that ego. You know what I mean? When you can't hit the same stride that you did when you're in your 30s. So being able to, I love that, leaving that legacy by empowering your team and leading your team. That's just such great advice. You truly have to believe it's a privilege to serve as a leader. And until then, you're a boss. Right. A manager. A manager. Exactly. Namesh, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I hope we get to talk again. Yeah, me too. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the uh, Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And we'll catch you next week. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.